All right, yeah, preach and teach. That's what we do here at Eurofolk Radio. And, of course, ladies and gentlemen, this is Voice of Christian Israel. And today's subject, at the behest of uh, certain people in the chat room yesterday, the subject today is telegony. I was trying to get a hold of Pastor Martins, but uh, was unable to do so. Yeah, and uh, Brother Aber, he knows what he's talking about, <laughs> right? Because we here at Eurofolk Radio are two seed liners, all of us. We're all two seed liners and covenanters. We know what the covenant message is. We know who we are and whose we are. At least we should, right? We belong to Yahweh and his son, Yahshua. And we are the heirs of the covenant, not the Jews, and the oh, what's the, the Gentiles, the so-called Gentiles, are not heirs of the covenant either, unless those quote-unquote Gentiles happen to be of the dispersed 12, 10 tribes of Israel. So whenever you see the word Gentile in Scripture, it's almost always a reference to the dispersed tribes of Israel. It's not a reference to non-Israelites at all. And my friend David Ewing, now departed, had done yeoman's work and uh, has actually, his research deserves to be put into book form. Maybe I'll be able to do that at some point before my 110th birthday, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, he showed that the the vast majority of the instances of the word Gentile in the scriptures are actually, certainly in the New Testament, our references back to the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, with the, there, he said, I asked him, how many verses do you think where the word Gentile is not a reference to Israelites? And he said, maybe three or four that he wasn't able to pinpoint as being references to Israelites, either during cross-references from one New Testament verse to another New Testament verse, or from New Testament to Old Testament, he said there's only doubt in about three or four passages. So it's quite possible that the word Gentile in Scripture may refer to non-Israelites in three or four passages. But with the idea of the covenant message in mind, yeah, Brother Abel says at least 85% are toward Israelites, and about 10% or so is Adamic nations. Yeah, because the... Israelites are a particular genome among the Adamic species, just as Shem was a particular genome among the Adamic species, and the Japhethites were a different genome of Adamites, and the Hamites a different genome. When we're talking about the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are talking about a very, very specific bloodline of Adamites, which excludes the other Adamites from the covenants. This is, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say they're all insects, <laughs> right? Oh, oh, maybe the, uh, the other races, okay, yeah, not the other uh, branches of the Adamic nations, okay, yeah. So, it's easy for, for me to uh, misread something when I'm just scanning it quickly, right? So, but today's subject is telegony, and... Let me go into, I think, uh, did I put the link in the chat room? I'm pretty sure I did. For this 19, oh yeah, 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, because 
as I have said many times on this subject, the it used to be a commonly accepted idea, but in terms of modern geneticists, academics, so-called scientists, blah, 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 and of course, theologians, they don't want to touch this subject with a 20-foot yarmulke. So, or they'll be dancing around that yarmulke until they, until they get thoroughly dizzy and all confused. Right? So let me just read the first paragraph. And then uh, I'll jump into scripture. Telegony, that is tele, in Greek meaning far, and gone, offspring. That is distant offspring, or offspring which are far away. Alienated, maybe. The name now given to the hypothesis that offspring sometimes inherit characteristics from a previous mate of their dam. What's a dam? Uh, like a madame? <laughs> that is the female of a particular species. Uh, more more specifically, uh, a domesticated species of animal. I think we humans, most of us, oh, uh, are domesticated, but not all of us. Certainly we Adamites are domesticated, although there might be a rank uh, buffoon <laughs> of Adamites living somewhere who uh, are not qualified to be spoken of as being civilized. Okay. Actually, I think I know a few of those. <laughs> Until recent years, the supposed inheritance of characters acquired by a dam from one or more of her former mates was usually designated by breeders as throwing back or a throwback. By physiologists, quote, infection of the germ, unquote, and I'm sure by the germ, they mean the, the sperm, or and both, or both the sperm and the, and the uh, egg, or some, somehow the zygote got infected, or simply infection. The doctrine of infection, like the somewhat allied doctrine of maternal impressions, seems to be alike ancient and widespread. So, this doctrine used to be believed everywhere and by everyone. Except for in the 20th century, when the Jews have taken over the rulership of academia and encyclopedias. Now, now realize I had to go to a 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica to get this information, I'm sure that modern uh, academics and modern encyclopedias have deleted this type of information altogether, right? Let's go back. Evidence of the antiquity of the belief in maternal impressions we have in Jacob placing peeled rods before Laban's cattle to induce them to bring forth ring-straked, speckled, and spotted offspring. So he was an animal breeder, and he knew how to get the unspeckled and unringed offspring out of whatever he was dealing with. So he probably crossbred. Now, what does peeled rods mean? <laughs> I have to read that passage more carefully. 
evidence of the antiquity of the infection doctrine we have, according to some writers, in the practice amongst the Israelites of requiring the childless widow to marry her deceased husband's brother, that he might raise up seed to his brother. Whatever may have been the views of stock owners in the remote past, it is certain that during the Middle Ages the belief in infection was common amongst breeders, and that during the last two centuries it met with the general approval of naturalists, English breeders being especially satisfied of the fact that the offspring frequently inherited some of the characteristics from a former mate of the dam. So in other words, some sort of genetic material from the previous sire remained in the womb or in the blood of the mother, the dam, and some of this genetic material was transferred to the subsequent offspring, even if that offspring came from a pure-blooded mate of the dam, not a uh, you know a, a strange breed, okay? And this has been observed in cattle for centuries, uh, even in horses, horses that have been mated with zebras, for example. If uh, a dam of the horse, of some horse breed, was mated with a male zebra, of course the initial offspring would have stripes, not as many stripes as a zebra, but they would have stripes. What the breeders found out, however, was when the dam was mated with a male of her own species, her offspring showed stripes. Not as many as the direct offspring from the zebra, but showed stripes nonetheless. This is telegony, showing that those offspring of a previous hybrid relationship still obtain in the dam. Now the question is, did this happen to Eve? It must have, because one of her offspring was Cain, the bastard. Cain, the bastard. So the question becomes, how many gestations of Eve's womb, because you have to have a flushing out of this foreign genetic material floating around in the bloodstream and or the womb of Eve has to be flushed out. I'm, I'm sure it's both, because as previously understood, Biologists thought there was a there was no transference of blood or DNA between the child in the womb and the mother. However, that turns out to have been false. That was previous understanding of biologists. Now they say that is false. There is transference of blood and DNA to the placenta from the mother and vice versa. I don't know how many studies have been done since I, I found this information out. I'm sure they've been doing more and more work on this. So that was a biological myth. And now we find out that indeed, blood and DNA 
transfer across the placenta and floats around in the mother's blood for some time. How long? Maybe if she eats right, <laughs> she, she may purge that kind of DNA and pollution. They're referring it to here as an infection. The polluting of the womb. So it's very obvious. We two seed lighters say that Eve's womb was polluted by Nachash when Eve conceived Cain and gave birth to it. Okay? So any offspring of Eve subsequent to Cain, whether by Adam or, well, let's assume it was only Adam that had multiple gestations after she delivered Cain, her womb would have to be cleansed. Let me finish this paragraph and I'll get back to the cleansing process. Okay. So, and of course he just talks about here, the author just talks about the uh, idea of a woman uh, giving seed to her dead husband through the uh, marrying her, her relative. Okay, so in other words, raving, raising up offspring to her deceased husband through the husband's brother or close relative, whatever it might be. All right. So it says, English breeders being especially satisfied of the fact that the offspring frequently inherited some of their characteristics from a former mate of the dam, while both English and continental naturalists, apparently without putting the assertions of breeders to the test of experiment, accounted for the throwing back by saying the germ cells of the dam had been directly or indirectly infected by a former mate. So since they weren't didn't have microscopes in those days, uh, germ cells would have to be uh, what we would call the zygote, you know, the... the uh, the, the very initial biological cells of the sperm and uh, egg mating, okay, coming together. So I'm sure that's what they mean by germ cells, which they just uh, assumed to be the case, and they were, of course, correct on that. Saying the germ cells of the dam had been directly or indirectly infected by a former mate. It is noteworthy that, now here's the list of names, L. Agassiz, C. Darwin, W. B. Carpenter, and G. J. Romanus were all more or less firm believers in the doctrine of infection, also known as telegony. So where did scientists go wrong and stop believing it? And that a few years ago, with the exception of Professor A. Weissman, all the leading biologists, of course, this is 1911 we're talking about, with the exception of Professor A. Weissman, all the leading biologists had either subscribed to the telegony doctrine or admitted that the, quote, infection of the germ, unquote, was well within the bounds of possibilities. Isn't it amazing that modern science has abandoned that idea. Well, because the fact of the matter is that the concept of race 
or purebred offspring is totally frowned upon these days, thanks to the Jews, of course. And we know that they're the ones who are most likely to have destroyed this understanding of telegony. So here we see from the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica that telegony was pretty much an accepted fact. They just didn't have microscopes to prove it yet. Okay? Once the microscope was stolen by the Rockefellers from other people, and they even went to the extreme of destroying a Royal Rice microscope, which would have competed with their microscope, and therefore they had a, a, a monopoly on microscopes and would not allow anybody who was not an allopathic doctor to look through a microscope. We see that they have a monopoly on this type of information since since about this time, since about 1911. Okay, so we're seeing here just when this concept of telegony was really in its heyday. In 1911, subsequent to 1911, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, and other Jews started to put the poobah on this, this whole idea. So, so he says that, uh, with the exception of Professor A. Weissman, all the leading biologists had either subscribed to the telegony doctrine or admitted that infection of the germ was well within the bounds of possibilities. Even Professor Weissman did not deny the possibility of the offspring throwing back to a previous mate. The widespread belief, he admitted, quote, may be justifiable and founded on fact, unquote. But he was careful to add that, quote, only the confirmation of the traditions by methodical (laughs) investigation, in this case by experiment, could raise telegony to the rank of fact, unquote. Well, telegony was never given the opportunity, was it? In assuming this attitude, Professor Weissman decidedly differed from Herbert Spencer, who some years ago mentioned that he had evidence enough to prove the fact of a previous sire asserting his influence on a subsequent progeny, unquote. So, Herbert Spencer was another believer. Okay. The importance of determining whether there is such a thing as telegony is sufficiently evident. If a mare or other female animal is liable to be infected by her first or by subsequent mates, telegony will rank as a cause of variation. And breeders will be justified in believing, one, that purebred females are liable to be corrupted when mated with sires of a different breed... Uh, Israelite females, take note. And two, that inferior or crossbred females, it first mated with a high-class sire, or if first mated with a high-class sire, will thereafter produce superior offspring, however inferior or crossbred her subsequent mates. So it's very, very important who your first mate is, ladies. Very, very important who your first mate is. And retain your virginity until you have that, you have that mate. Oh man, this is getting too complicated for modern people, isn't it? If, on the other hand, infection of the germ is impossible, 
telegony will not count as a factor in variation, and breeders will no longer be either justified in regarding mares and other female animals as liable to be corrupted by ill-assorted unions, or benefited by first having offspring to a high class, or it may be more vigorous mates. Though, according to breeders, evidence of telegony has been found in nearly all the different kinds of domestic animals or mammals and birds, most stress has been laid on instances of infection in the horse and dog families, also in cattle. All right, so this is 1911, and I know I know a couple of cattle breeders that I've talked to who swear up and down that telegony is real. Okay, so throughout history, the animal breeders have sworn to the reality of telegony. It's just in modern times, as this article reveals, last hundred years or so, that telegony has been frowned upon by academia, but not by animal breeders, which should tell you something, right? There's always been this divergence of people on the ground, namely farmers, cattle breeders, etc., and the academics who have their own agenda, typically a Jewish agenda, to deny the reality of race and poo-poo the idea that race mixing, you know, they say, what, aren't they saying that diversity is our strength, right? All those little bastards running around, that's our strength? Really? That's our strength? Well, let's see what our Bible has to say about this. So, as you all know, in Deuteronomy 23, 2, I'll read verses 23, 2, and 3. Quote, A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh, even to his tenth generation, shall he not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. And I'll read verse 3. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. Now this is really saying something because the Ammonites and Moabites were pure-blooded Shemites. Lot was a cousin or nephew, I forget which, of Abraham. Quite closely related. But this is telling us that we should not even mate with Ammonites or Moabites unto the tenth generation. So what does that mean in terms of actual offspring an actual number of generations, okay? And I know there's others who say that unto the tenth generation means forever, all right? They shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever, which is what it says in verse 3, okay? So, to their tenth generation. And then it says forever. So, what, what does this mean? Does it mean forever or tenth generation? Okay, I think what it means is that those people who are up to the 10th generation 
none of those shall enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Because this would be a contradiction in terms otherwise. Tenth generation and forever are not the same thing. They're not the same value. So anyway, if you do a a calculation, so if you take a pure-blooded Israelite woman, okay, and she has ten generations of subsequent offspring with pure Adamic males from that point on, okay? So so let's take Eve as an example, Cain being the offspring. So in the first generation, uh, her chance, if she mates again with a pure adamant like her husband Adam, okay, then that offspring would uh, be uh, one chance in two of having a, a corrupt offspring. Next, second generation would be four, one in four chance. Third generation would be one in eight chance of having a corrupted uh, d- genetics. Next generation would be one in 16. Next generation would be one in 32. The next would be one chance in 64. So in other words, one gene out of every 64 would be of the corrupted variety. Next generation, one in every 128 would be of the corrupted variety. Next, one out of 256. Next, one out of 512. And next would be one out of 1,024. So by the 10th generation, only one gene out of 1,024 would be of the corrupted variety. Okay? So... It depends on how you interpret Deuteronomy 23.2 and 23.3, and we could probably spend weeks arguing about that. However, a lot of people, you know, this, this translation says bastard, and those of us in identity know what bastard really means. It does not mean someone born out of wedlock. And this is Hebrew number 4464, Mamzer, from an unused root to alienate a mongrel. And then then they give a really strange definition. That is born of a Jewish father, by which they mean Judahite, a Judahite father or an Israelite father, and a heathen mother. But of course, it can go both ways. So that's a horrible definition because it assumes that Jews are Israelites. (laughs) All right. So you can see the errors in the strong concordance and other concordance are evident when you're a 2C liner, okay? So these two verses taken together means, at, at least, at the very least, that it will take 10 generations of offspring by which only one part in 1,024 would be corrupted genetics. So that is quite uh, you know, a, a long time. So the 10 generations, given 40 years, that's 400 years. So you would, and even then, you wouldn't have a pure-blooded Israelite because the next generation would be one in 2048 and so on. Okay? So it depends on whether you uh, read the word forever at the end of verse 3 literally 
or the tenth generation, literally, etc., etc. So uh, these two verses seem to contradict one another. One mentions the word forever, the other one doesn't. Here, let me look at forever and see what that says. Okay, uh, add, and that's 5704, and Olam is 5769. So it's a combination of Ad and Olam. And it means properly concealed. The vanishing point. Okay. So forever here means the vanishing point. The vanishing point. Now is one in 2028 the vanishing point or not? Okay. Only Yahweh knows, I think, in this case. So we we better be careful and not assimilate with the other races, to use a, a more genteel word, okay? So we'd not better not be race mixers, to use the proper... Yeah, no mamzers allowed in the Holy of Holies, and uh, mamzers would be killed if they even tried to enter their grounds. So this is the law, folks. And Sevenon says, 10th generation is a Hebraism, meaning forever. Very good. Thank you, Seven. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, as I just said, well, uh, what about one, one, uh, one chance in 2048? There's still that chance that the offspring will be a mamzer. Okay. So, like I said, we could debate this for years without coming to the, the, the best thing to do is simply to not race mix, period. Simply not do it. We're forbidden to do it anyway. Yes, uh, Swamp Fox says, virgins are highly prized. <laughs> Remember the ten virgins? So, so, all right, ladies, keep that chastity belt on until you find the proper white man, Israelite, preferably, to be your might. And Swampox also says, 10 denotes ordinal perfection, another new first after the ninth digit when numeration begins anew. Yeah, because it's, it's one plus a zero. Okay. You're my number one. <laughs> whoever, whoever did that song. Anyway, so we're, we're looking at uh, some serious stuff here, folks. This is serious stuff. We are talking about telegony. All right, and so I'll, I'll do, read more from the Encyclopedia Britannica. But I also found another verse in Scripture that it contains the word bastard. So what verse is that? And uh, let me go. I think I have to find this in the other browser here. Let me open up that browser. And, okay, I'm in the wrong browser here. Well, I can find it uh, pretty quick if it doesn't pop up for me here. And anyway, it, the, the verse is Zechariah 9.6. Zechariah 9.6. Here we go. And... The question is, who is the bastard of Zechariah 9.6? Who is, and 
And the verse says, And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. Let me get to open up this uh, other, other site here, which gives a discussion. Let me scroll up. And if I didn't put this in the chat room, let me do it now. Because this is very interesting. A bastard dwelt in Ashdod. So what is this story all about? Well, uh, Ashdod was, I think, a town in the territory of Dan. So let's go into this verse, Zechariah 9, 6. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. So it has something to do with the Philistines. Now the Philistines, as we should know, although they came into being as pure-blooded Hamites, which meant they were white and that they were kinsmen to the Shemites through Ham, okay, all came from the womb of Naamah, Noah's wife. So all three of those Adamites came through Naamah. So Naamah did not have a polluted womb. She bred pure-blooded Adamite offspring. So Zechariah 9.6 context, verse 3. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold. This is talking about the creation of Tyre in the territory of the Philistines, which, of course, was taken over by the tribe of Dan and other Israelite tribes, and heaped up silver as the dust. Why? Because we're talking here about the Phoenicians. And they were great traders, and they made lots of money. But the Tyrians interbred with the Phoenicians, or Canaanites. So we're talking about Tyre as being an essentially Canaanite enterprise, but they used Israelite sailors to row the boat. Okay? So there probably was a fair amount of miscegenation going on uh, in ports of call (laughs) and also in Tyre itself. Let's continue. So... They heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. So they were extremely wealthy. Behold, Yahweh will cast her out and he will smite her power in the sea. We're definitely talking about the Phoenicians here. And she shall be devoured with fire. And, of course, this also presages the destruction of Mystery Babylon, which has also been been compared with Tyre in Scripture. Okay, Tyre was an early version of Mystery Babylon. Ashkelon shall see it, and I think Ashkelon is simply a reference to a city. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very Sorrowful, and Ekron, for her expectation shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. In other words, this is prophesying the total destruction of Tyre. The total destruction of Tyre. Here we go. Verse 6, And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, 
And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Well, of which two races is this bastard? I would assume it was an Israelite man or woman and a either a Canaanite or Philistine. What are uh, the two of an Israelite on one side and a Canaanite or Philistine on the other? Now, remember when, when Goliath, no, yeah, Goliath, no, Samson, when Samson chose to marry a, uh, a Philistine woman by the name of Delilah, his parents didn't put up a very great fuss. Those were uh, earlier days and as I said, these Philistines were pure-blooded descendants of Ham. They had actually spent a lot of time on an island in the Mediterranean and eventually migrated to the coast of, of the territory now called Palestine after the Philistines. So how much miscegenation was going on among these Hamites, we have no way of knowing, but there certainly had to be some. But in the time of Goliath, Goliath was hired by the Philistines of the Canaanites. Okay, so there might not have been a lot of miscegenation going on between the Philistines and the Canaanites up to this point in time. We really have no way of knowing. There had to be some. Verse 7, And I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God, our God, that is Yahweh, and he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. So, I will take away his blood out of his mouth. It appears to be a reference of to their, their eating of blood. They will stop eating uh, blood of whatever animals they ate. Or it could also be a, a reference to warlike activities. And his abominations from between his teeth, maybe eating pork and whatever. But he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God, and she ha- and he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. Wow, that is a lot of information that really would have to be analyzed, and I really can't do that on today's show. All right. As a governor in Judah. Okay, let's see. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I seen with mine eyes, rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly riding upon an ass and upon a colt of the foal of an ass. Okay? So this is a major prophecy. This is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. So is this merely saying that we will have allies? Is this like in the book of Zechariah chapter 14? Or what? You know, that uh, we will have allies among non-Israelites who are not to be condemned merely because they are of another race. Even the Babylonians, many Babylonians, 
wound up worshiping Yahweh because of Daniel's miracles among them. All right, so here is the Benson commentary on this verse. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. Newcomb reads, quote, strangers, understanding by the expression, quote, a strange and spurious race, a despicable race, born of harlots. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how we two sea liners would interpret that. But Blady, who reads, a stranger observes that the Hebrew word here used does not imply an illegitimate offspring. Okay, we would disagree with that interpretation. In proof of which he quotes Psalm 69.8, where, well, it's not, uh, is that another version of the word bastard or uh, mamzer? It's a slightly different spelling. Where the, the word that is spelled slightly differently I'd have to look the verse up. A word from which the above is derived is translated a stranger, so that he supposes the sense of this clause to be that in the city of Ashdod should be peopled with strangers, not descended from its present possessors. The Septuagint and Chaldee understand the expression in the same sense, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Ashdod, or Azotus, was burned and destroyed by Jonathan, brother of Judas Maccabeus, and 8,000 of its men burned or slain, 1 Maccabees 10, 84-85. These were probably intended here by the pride of the Philistines, that is, the pride or excellence of the ancient inhabitants in whose room the strangers were introduced. So, apparently, that is a prophecy that the Maccabees would take the place of the Philistines. And obviously the Maccabees were pure-blooded racial Judahites who would never even think think about breeding with Philistines. So I think the proper interpretation of this verse is that ultimately that territory would be replaced by the Judahites of the Maccabees and become a territory of pure Judah. Wow! Double wow. Okay, let's continue. Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And that's from 1 Maccabees 10, 84, 85. These were probably intended here by the pride of the Philistines. That is the pride or excellence. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. I'm going to have to put this also in the chat room because I think everybody will want to see this. This is really good stuff. Okay, <laughs> this is really good stuff. I have to switch browsers. Sorry, it'll take me a, bit, a second here. But this is very important stuff. Okay, so there's the Bible Hub commentary on that verse, Zechariah 9.6. Turns out it's a very crucial verse which prophesies the coming of Judas Maccabeus and making war against the Philistines and basically wiping out they're leaders. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. The Philistine shall be brought down so low that he shall not be in a condition to molest or threaten slaughter to his neighbors as he did formerly. And his abominations from between his teeth. He shall be reduced to such poverty that he shall no more make banquets in honor of his idols and feast upon them. Quote, 
the idolatrous and abominable practices of the Philistines shall cease. The metaphor is taken from beasts of prey who gorge themselves with blood, unquote. Ashdod is mentioned by Josephus among the cities of the Phoenicians, which were under the dominion of the Jews, well, of the Judahites in former times. And it is well known that they exacted of all who were under their authority a conformity in a certain degree to their religious rites and ceremonies. Well, these would have been the Israelites who had become paganized. These would be paganized Israelites who were very good sailors. This will explain what is meant by taking his blood, etc. The stranger was required to abstain from eating blood and from such things as were held in abomination by the Judahite or Mosaic law. But he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God. This was fulfilled in the times of the Maccabees and also in the times of Alexander Janius, who subdued their principal cities, as Josephus relates, in Antiquities, and made them part of the Judahite dominions, the inhabitants of several of which embraced the Judahite religion, and he shall be as a governor in Judah. So, the only possible translation and interpretation of this is that Judah will take over this territory, and we know the Maccabees were pure-blooded Judahites. Okay, so let's get back. We have about 15 minutes left. Let's get back to the article we started out with in (laughs) Lily of the Valley. Adrenochrome? Yeah, yeah, sucking or drinking the blood of children. You may have something there, Lily. (laughs) They may have known something about the blood of sacrificed infants that we've only discovered today. Yeah, born from Beelzebub, okay? So, getting back to the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay, Telegony in the horse family. Beecher, at the end of the 17th century, pointed out that when a mare has had a mule by an ass, uh, that could, <laughs> you can have that among humans, too. <laughs> and afterwards, a foal by a horse... There are evident marks on the foal of the mother having retained some ideas of her former paramour, the ass. And by ideas, he must mean genetic material. That mares used used in mule breeding are liable to be infected is still widely believed. But irrefragable evidence of the influence of the ass persisting, as Agus has assumed, is conspicuous by its absence. Yeah, because nobody tested it. Darwin says, quote, It is worth notice that the farmers in South Brazil are convinced that mares which have once borne mules when subsequently put to horses are extremely liable to produce colts striped like a mule. Animals and Plants, Volume 1. Page 436. Baron de Parana, on the other hand, says, I have many relatives and friends who have large establishments for the rearing of mules, where they obtain from 400 to 1,000 mules in a year. In all of these establishments, after two or three crossings of the mare and ass, the breeders cause the mare to be put to a horse. Yet a purebred foal has never been produced 
resembling either an ass or a mule. Well, that's that's only three generations. Remember, maybe when you get to the tenth generation, it's one gene per one thousand and twenty-four. So just because they didn't see it in an obvious manner, they haven't tested it genetically, which, of course, they weren't able to do in those days. Let's continue. The prevalence of the belief in telegony at the present day is largely due to a case of supposed infection reported to the Royal Society in 1820 by Lord Morton. A chestnut mare, after having a hybrid by a quagga, a quagga is a, a type of zebra. Some say it's extinct. Some say it still exists in the wild. Produced to a black Arabian horse, three folds showing a number of stripes. Okay, so the initial mating of a hybrid that created a hybrid was a quagga, which is a type of uh, zebra, and a black Arabian horse produced three foals showing a number of stripes. So obviously three hybrids. In one more stripe that were in one more stripes were present than in the quagga hybrid. The more, however, the case was so intimately associated with the name of Lord Morton is considered the less convincing is the evidence it affords in favor of infection. Stripes are frequently seen in high-caste Arab horses and crossbred colts out of Arab mares. Well, are they coming from Arabia, where they may have been doing such crossbreeding? Come on, guys. you got to do your scientific uh, investigation. You're just making assumptions that these Arab horses are purebreds. And crossbred colts out of Arab mares sometimes present far more distinct bars across the legs and other zebra-like markings than characterized by the subsequent offspring of Lord Morton's seven-eighths Arabian mare. Well, which is, just goes to prove that, that these uh, showings can last after multiple generations, right? They're considering one, two, three generations. That's all they're considering. And if they don't have any obvious hybrid results, they're saying, well, since we don't see anything obvious after three generations, it, uh, it's no longer telegony. Yes, it is telegony, for sure. And the, uh, then the author states, in the absence of control experiments, there is therefore no reason for assuming, yeah, we can't make assumptions, but you have to do the experiments. Lord Morton's chestnut mare would have had produced less striped offspring had she been mated with the Black Arabian before giving birth to a quagga hybrid. Well, that's what Telegony says, that the mare, or dam, her subsequent offspring, if you confine her matings to pure Arabian, or a pure breed, and not to any more quagga, Each subsequent generation will have less or fewer and fewer characteristics of the quagga. That just makes sense. That just makes genetic sense. All right? Oh, because that's what the Bible tells us. Uh, the uh, incident, but you have to guarantee 
that the male is always a pure-breaded <laughs> horse and not also a hybrid, because that's going to confound the results tremendously, which they found in these so, so, so assumedly pure-bred Arabian horses, okay? So let's continue here. To account for the stripes on the subsequent folds, it is only necessary now that the principles of crossbreeding are better understood to assume that in one in the crossbred chestnut mare there lay latent the characteristics of the Katiawar or other Indian breeds in which stripes commonly occur. Darwin and others, having regarded Lord Morton's mare as affording very strong evidence in support of the infection hypothesis, it was considered some years ago desirable to repeat Lord Morton's experiment as accurately as possible. The quagga having become extinct, but as I just said, uh, there's evidence now that many have survived in the wild and they're still around. Uh, the quagga having become extinct, a number of mares were put to a richly striped Burchell zebra and subsequently bred with Arab, thoroughbred, and crossbred sires. Other mares were used for control experiments. You see how these uh, people love to experiment with genetics? <laughs> we are not to allow ourselves to be experimented on, folks. We are not allowed to have that happen to us. What do you think they're doing to us with the jab? They're introducing all kinds of foreign genetic material, uh, you know, monkey genes, into our blood. Thank you, Bill Gates, and the rest of you abominations of desolation doctors with your vaccines. Other mares were used for control experiments. 30 mares put to a Burchell zebra produced 17 hybrids and subsequently 20 purebred foals, or what they assume to be purebred foals. The mares used for control experiments produced 10 purebred foals. Unlike Lord Morton's quagga hybrids, all the zebra hybrids were richly and sometimes very distinctly striped, some of them having far more stripes than their zebra parents. Of the subsequent foals, three out of three out of Highland mares presented indistinct markings at birth, but as equally distinct markings occurred on two purebred Highland foals out of mares which had never seen a zebra, it was impossible to ascribe the stripes on the foals born after zebra hybrids to infection of other respective dams. Again, they probably didn't clear these other. Uh, uh, What's the term for a uh, a horse, a male horse used for breeding? Uh, I forget what that term is. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, a stud, a stud. So they probably didn't inspect the uh, you know the uh, ancestry of the stud or of the mare uh, equally as well. Okay, so. Further, the subsequent foals afforded no evidence of infection, at least not what they could determine, either in the mane, tail, hoofs, or disposition. Of purebred foals, the foals by purebred sires out of mares which had never been mated with a zebra, two were striped at birth and one acquired stripes later. They were revealed as the foals' coat was shed. Interesting. 
Wow, there were stripes underneath the coat of the shedding of the initial coat. Moreover, oh, see, there's underlying. That stuff doesn't appear till later in life, right? Whoa, it just shows how little genetics is understood. Moreover, while the fate markings on the foals were born after hybrids completely disappeared with the foals' coat, the stripes on three purebred colts persisted. One of the permanently striped colts, a bay, was out of a black Shetland mare by a black Shetland sire. One was by a Dun, D-U-N, Norwegian pony, out of a roan-colored Arab mare, while the third was by a Norwegian pony out of a half-breed bay Arab mare. It has been asserted by believers in telegony that evidence of infection may appear in the second, though not present, in the first generation. By way of testing this assumption, a bay filly, the half-sister of a richly striped hybrid, was put to a crossbred highland pony and a highland mare, while nursing her hybrid foal was put to a colt, the half-brother of a hybrid. Is it possible that the mother's milk could transmit genetic material through her milk? That's a possibility, too. All right, so I see we're running out of time. And folks, this is a subject that deserves further exploration. I wasn't aware how deep we we're gonna, t- how deep this dive was gonna be, but it was pretty deep dive, folks. Pretty deep dive, and I think we can say with a tremendous certainty that telegony is real. The people who don't want to do the research won't do the research, and the people who are most qualified to do the research are animal breeders. And they have to, you know, do multi-generational research to verify what telegony is and how how many uh, repetitions and how many offspring recorded uh, show stripes or whatever the feature is they're looking for. Okay? Yeah, co-venom 19 is what they're, uh, uh, snake venom (laughs) they're injecting to us, among other things, right? So... Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. I remain firmly convinced that telegony is real and that the, I don't care how many Jews deny it and how many academics deny it, it is real. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you all next time. Bye-bye.